funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, truce extended. Israel and Hamas agreed to a continued pause in fighting as more hostages are released. A Rutgers expert weighs in on what it means for the broader war. This break in fighting is going to allow Hamas to rearm. It's going to allow Hamas to get fuel, to reorganize, and to defend itself. And so you have to assume it has a strategic consequence. Also, party line pushback. This is a sophisticated form of voter suppression. It just is. New Jersey's unique primary ballots are under scrutiny once again. A new report calling foul on the backroom political deals being brokered. Plus, looking for solutions to eliminate the teacher shortage in the state. Will lessening certification requirements make the grade? As we see barriers sometimes that do not help us just recruit the best and retain the best, uh, but really keep people out who would be great educators. And is a $34 million beach replenishment project in Monmouth County enough to save the shoreline? We've been working on these beach replenishment and dredging projects for years, and we'll continue to do so. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Hello and thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Joanna Gagas, in for Brianna Venozzi. Today marks the fifth day that fighting has been paused in Gaza, allowing for 12 more hostages held by Hamas to be released home to their families. And in exchange, around 30 more Palestinian prisoners were released from Israeli jails. Fighting was set to resume today, but Qatar officials announced that Israel agreed to pause fighting for an additional two days to allow more hostages to be released. Once again, this latest round of releases includes mothers and children children, but they have broken the rules agreed upon between Hamas and Israel by separating families who are being held together. Somewhere around 150 hostages remain in Hamas captivity, including nine Americans, one of them from New Jersey. Both Israel and Hamas have accused the other of violating the truce agreement today. Israeli defense forces saying explosives were detonated near their forces and Hamas claiming that the IDF caused field friction. But in spite of these accusations, the exchange of prisoners still moved forward. But even as around 150 Palestinians have been released so far, most of them women and children, the IDF has simultaneously arrested more than 130 Palestinians in the West Bank. Meanwhile, in Gaza, the latest count of Palestinians who've been killed during the IDF attacks counts somewhere near 14,000, according to the United Nations, which says most are women and children. So what does this continued pause in fighting and these ongoing exchanges mean for the war overall? I'm joined now by Michael Boyle, Associate Professor of Political Science at Rutgers University Camden, for some perspective. Michael, great to have you with us today. Uh, today is the fifth day of Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners being released. What do we know about who was released by Hamas today and the process by which they are continuing to be selected? So the, the releases have been happening essentially in batches of about roughly 10. Um, they've been prioritizing largely women and children uh, and not counting uh, those who are military-aged males or those who are in active military service. So Hamas has essentially drawn a distinction between those that it sees as very clearly non-combatants and those that are combatants or potential combatants. 
Um, they've been doing this in batches of about 10, and the agreement is that this will happen essentially alongside Palestinian prisoner releases done by Israel, and that for every day that this sort of trade happens, they'll get an extra couple of days of ceasefire. Um, just yesterday, it was announced there'll be two extra days of the ceasefire while this kind of trade of about roughly 10 to 11 to 12 hostages per day are released, um, and roughly 100 to 150 Palestinian prisoners are released as well. Let's talk about the American hostages being held. President Biden confirmed there are nine. One of them is from Tenafly, New Jersey, Adon Alexander. Uh, what do we know about the Americans possibly being released? Alexander himself was an IDF soldier. Doesn't look, as you said, that those are, are anywhere on the list of being released, although the U.S. government is urging for their release. What do we know? So President Biden's made it the top priority to get American citizens out of Moss's custody, and understandably so. Part of the issue is, number one, who is holding them? So, you know, Hamas is holding all of the hostages, but they have different cells of Hamas, different organizational units within it. And there are also stories coming out the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and other organizations also hold some hostages. So it's a coordination game on their side as well to figure out where the hostages are and who they are going to release. Um, from what I understand, the CIA director is currently meeting with, with Qatar and a number of other representatives in an attempt to get all of the American hostages released before there would be a resumption of the war. But it's unclear whether that's going to happen. And if there's a sticking point, it's very likely to be, again, military-aged males, which Hamas seems to be setting aside and saying they're not willing to consider releasing in this batch of, of hostage releases in support of the ceasefire. You mentioned that this pause in fighting has been extenuated for an additional two days. What do we know about the impact that that has on Hamas, on their ability to reorganize, regroup militarily? So the U.S. government's been very clear about this. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jake Sullivan pointed out the other day, the National Security Advisor pointed out the other day, that, there's, that this break in fighting is going to allow Hamas to rearm. It's going to allow Hamas to get fuel, to reorganize, and to defend itself. And so you have to assume it has a strategic consequence. The argument that the U.S. is making is, although this may give a pause that in fact actually helps Hamas, if it gets more hostages out of harm's way, it's probably a net benefit. Uh, and so we have to assume that Hamas is going to come back, probably possibly strengthened at the very minimum, but refreshed, um, and possibly with fuel, ammunition, and so on, things that it's getting in. Is that going to massively change the strategic balance? I don't think so, but it is likely to give them essentially a breathing space. Well, the U.S. government, I mean, Israel has made it clear that when um, the, the exchange ends, that they will continue to fight, they will continue to attack Gaza and Hamas. The U.S. government is urging that they take a more targeted, uh, strategic approach to that attack. What impact does that U.S. warning have on Israel? Does it change their military strategy? A good question. So the U.S. essentially has been trying to quietly lobby Israel to say, look, after you come back from this ceasefire, and the assumption that Israel has been very clear that the war will continue once the ceasefire stops. So once they get as many hostages as they think they can get out, at that point, the war will then continue and it will go to the south. The U.S. is also trying to explore what kind of leverage it has to persuade Israel to take a very specific, targeted, and much more limited approach because the political costs of this are growing. Absolutely. Michael Boyle, Associate Professor of Political Science at Rutgers Camden. Thank you. Great insight. Thank you. Wall Street Journal reporter and Jersey native Evan Gershkovich will remain in Russian prison until January 30th. A private closed-door court hearing was held in Russia this morning, where the court determined that his pre-trial detention would be extended once again. Gershkovich is being held on charges of espionage. The Russian government saying that he obtained a state secret about activities connected to the Russian military-industrial complex and that he acted on the instruction of the American side. Russia's provided no evidence whatsoever to support that claim 
team and U.S. officials, along with his employer, the Wall Street Journal, have repeatedly and vehemently denied the accusation. Russia continues to ignore calls from U.S. government officials to release him, adhering to their policy that no trade can be made until Gershkovich is convicted. It's been nearly 250 days since he was first detained in March. The game of politics can be a dirty sport, but there's growing pushback against a process that plays out here in New Jersey called the party line. It's the closed-door, backroom endorsement of a candidate by county leaders in the state that ends up giving that candidate priority placement on election ballots. Senior political correspondent David Cruz takes a look at a new report that shows just how undemocratic those county lines can be. Like the traffic jug handle and not being able to pump your own gas, the party line is a uniquely Jersey thing. It's awarded to primary candidates favored by the ruling political organization and gives them favored ballot position and usually comes with that organization's money and human resources. No other state does it like Jersey because no other state does it. It's not just that you have good ballot position, which you do on the county line. It's also that everyone else has pretty much bad ballot position and they may be multiple blank spaces away from you, and they're not running with a whole slate of candidates. So all of these things contribute to the power of the county line, and there is no other state who does those things. Rutgers professor Julia Sass Rubin is something of an authority on this. She's got a new study due out soon for the Seton Hall Law Review that looked at the power of the line in congressional and U.S. Senate races in Jersey over the past two decades. So there were 45 instances where either a U.S. House or a U.S. Senate primary candidate split the endorsements. And in every one of those 45, the person on the county line won and decisively. The average difference between being on the county line and having your opponent on the county line was 35, excuse me, 38 percentage points. Progressives are challenging the line in court, claiming that the sometimes Byzantine Jersey ballot represents blatant voter suppression and keeps many good candidates from even running because they know the deal. But the issue has gotten hot again because of this. I'm running for the United States Senate. Within days of her announcement, Tammy Murphy, married to Governor Phil Murphy, head of the state's Democratic Party, got the endorsement of the five most powerful counties in the state, Bergen, Essex, Middlesex, Hudson, and Camden which collectively accounted for more than 50% of primary votes in the last election, putting her main opponent, Congressman Andy Kim, at a big disadvantage. Henel Patel co-authored this op-ed saying, this is no way to elect a U.S. Senator. These are the facts here. The First Lady has announced she wants to be the U.S. US Senator, and the governor who happens to be the head of the party between that power junction, they have now locked up the support of the five biggest counties. And that means they're going to get the, she's going to get the line. That's, that's absurd in terms of what a real democracy should look like. It just, it simply is. And everyone should be willing to say that. Um, and everyone should acknowledge that we deserve better. But Micah Rasmussen of the Rebovich Institute, who teaches politics and government at Ryder University, says the Murphy-Kim race, featuring two well-funded candidates, will be a big test for the power of the line. That said, he thinks we shouldn't be so quick to dump the line, which in the end, he says, represents the will 
of the party's elected leaders. Ultimately, um, these are these are elected officials of the party, and it's up to them what they go along with and what they don't go along with. That is entirely their choice. If they didn't want to go along with the recommendations of the county chair or the endorsement of the county chair, then they don't have to do that. Tell that to Hector Oseguera, who ran unsuccessfully in the congressional primary in Hudson County in 2020. He notes that party chairs can override committee votes, essentially leaving it to five guys in big counties to pick winners and losers. What it really does is it makes a candidate running for one office have to recruit candidates for every other office that you're going to appear on that ballot or else you're going to be put in column G where nobody's going to see you. And, you know, this is not theory. And you can see that for the way that the elected officials themselves tightly guard the line. Having the cash and the bodies is always going to give the organization pick a leg up. But everyone we talked to today said a good first step towards leveling the playing field would be to simplify the ballot so that everyone running for, say, U.S. Senate is listed together and forcing them maybe to articulate a rationale for their candidacy beyond the bosses say it's okay. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. The teacher shortage in New Jersey has increasingly worsened over the years, exacerbated by the pandemic and culture wars that have infiltrated classrooms. But education experts say it's actually New Jersey's teaching requirements that prevent aspiring teachers from ever making it into the classroom. Well, just yesterday, Governor Murphy signed a bill that would eliminate one of the tests that critics say was arbitrary and unnecessary. The NJEA is applauding that move, and I'm joined now by its president and NJPBS Community Advisory Board member, Sean Spiller to explain why. Sean, great to have you with us tonight. New Jersey is known for its um, high quality standards in education, and that really begins with the quality of our teachers. So why is the state's largest teachers union in support of getting rid of this praxis basic skills test uh, that aspiring teachers have to pass in order to become a teacher? Yeah, listen, we're really excited to have the best schools in the nation. We have for some time. We continually do because, as you note, of educators and so many others who are part of that system. Uh, but we also know that we've got to eliminate barriers for people coming into the profession. And unfortunately, uh, whether it's financial or otherwise, we see barriers sometimes that do not help us just recruit the best and retain the best, uh, but really keep people out who would be great educators. And this is an example of that. Every educator still has to pass a subject-specific test that goes through exactly what they need to know for the course that they're going to teach. Um, and the basic skills, I use that in air quotes, is um, doesn't really measure the things that someone would think maybe are basic skills that everyone needs to know. You know, it's pretty abstract and obscure, and uh, it doesn't have any measure of, of how successful an educator will be. Sean, just want to drill down into the history of this test a bit more. We've sat through many education hearings where advocates called for the removal of this test. Um, what? Give me an example of why this test doesn't accurately uh, indicate the success a teacher might have in the classroom. Yeah, so let's say you're asking about obscure high-level math, uh, you know, for someone who's going to be teaching a kindergarten class, right? So you would think if something's a basic skills test, you know, you've got basic math on there, or you've got, you know, basic writing and reading skills, you know, th those things that I, I guess I would think of, or I think most people would think of as basic, um, when it's asking about, you know, very high-level 
couple of very obscure things that you're like, well, if I'm going on to teach math, I've got a specific math practice I'm going to pass to go teach that course. How does this change potentially bring in more teachers of color? We know that New Jersey's classrooms very often are, do not represent the diversity that our classrooms do. How do we potentially see more teachers of color, especially in urban areas, with this change? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I don't think there's any one thing that's going to, you know, make a massive change when we're in uh, one of the most diverse states and our diversity is our strength. Uh, we also know we're one of the most segregated states. I'll note that as well. But as we try and recruit and retain, we've also been working with the Department of Ed and other partners to say, while we're doing that, how can we get a more diverse workforce that is reflective of the student population that they teach? Uh, and that does mean talk about eliminating some of the things that are barriers. And, and those barriers might mean uh, tests that keep people out because of uh, some of the obscure things that they ask, but it also can be the dollars, right? So many times right now, uh, we see these high cost tests that people have to take sometimes multiple times, um, while at the same time, by the way, they're trying to, you know, go into student teaching, which uh, thankful Governor Murphy, you, get, you might get a little bit of money for now, but you didn't get any money for, um, you know, all of these things compounding to say, wait a minute, I've got to put out all these dollars to try and get into a profession where for somebody with the same degrees as me, they're going into something else, they're making a lot more money, um, and they don't have all these obstacles that I have got to get through. Sean, what else would the NJEA like to see changed when it comes to either the standards that are required or uh, incentives for more teachers to get into the classrooms? Yeah, I think you, you hit on two things, but I want to highlight another one as well. Um, a lot of those things focus on recruitment, and that's important, right? We've got to get people into the profession, and we want to get a diverse workforce as we do it. But we've really got to focus on retention. What we're seeing in the data is that educators are not staying until retirement, which they traditionally did in the past. Um, so, yes, we've got to do the recruitment things like what the governor has done, right? Let's start giving a stipend for student teaching. Let's eliminate the fees that uh, to process your paperwork. Let's eliminate things like the praxis test here. Let's get rid of EdTPA. These things are happening, and that's a great start. Um, but these individuals are not going to stay in the profession when, again, their salaries are lagging behind their peers, um, when you're facing a new dynamic, when so many other uh, uh, job areas can work from home, um, when you're looking out there and you see the, the, the burdensome paperwork that you don't think has any impact on student success, but you have to do, um, and combine that with the loss of autonomy that, that educators are seeing as professionals um, and, and the erosion of benefits. Thankfully, we've seen success, success on the healthcare side, uh, but pensions have still been eroded over the years. So we've got to do more on the retention side. Sean Spiller, thanks so much for taking the time and being with us tonight. President of the New Jersey Education Association, thank you. Thank you for having me. In our Spotlight on Business report tonight, Governor Murphy addressed the business community today to double down on a promise he made not to renew a corporate surcharge tax that New Jersey businesses have said was stifling them. That was just one of the matters discussed at the New Jersey Business and Industry Association's 2023 Public Policy Forum, where business and government leaders took on the tough topics that surround the state's economic growth. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan was there and has more on the state's business outlook. I'm still supporting the sunsetting of the corporate business tax on December 31st. In a glass half full speech, Governor Murphy promised this crowd of business folks that he will not succumb to political pressure and renew the business tax surcharge many view as onerous. But he also emphasized the state's looking at a budget cliff. The deal's a deal. So we said this was a bridge till we get to a better place and we meant it. On the other hand, it does exacerbate what is a structural 
deficit that we're running at the moment, and we have to be clear-eyed about that as well. The sunset of the surcharge of the corporate business tax, that 2.5%, makes a difference for New Jersey corporations. That's hundreds of thousands of jobs that are employed here in the state of New Jersey. Michelle Sikirka heads New Jersey's Business and Industry Association, which sponsored this policy forum. The group's latest annual survey showed 69% of employers rated the state economy as fair or poor. But that's a slight improvement over last year when 78% gave it a thumbs down. Also, 68% of employers felt the state had not done enough to address business affordability in 2023, compared to 75% last year, again, a small 9% improvement. This is a slow climb out of, you know, what some feel was a, a tough after COVID hole to be climbing out of. As for the structural deficit, a panel of lawmakers talked about the billion-dollar fiscal cliff confronting NJ Transit in 2026. We need to find some type of dedicated revenue source in, in, the, in the budget. And I'm not being, I'm trying not to be here, you know, vague here at all. Uh, what that looks like, I am not certain, quite frankly. Uh, and we should avoid any type of um, <clears throat> surcharge or tax on the business community. Do they ever really try and explain to commuters what the value of taking out New Jersey Transit is? And I don't think they ever really do that and explain it very well. The governor, who said he'd fix NJ Transit if it kills him, remains upbeat about the future, but sees a delayed recovery. We're gonna see that reality flip, and it'll be a positive reality, but it won't be tomorrow. Um, my gut tells me we're in a six to 18 month softness or sideways uh, period of time. The governor said New Jersey talent and locations sell well anywhere. The key is keeping both engines fed. He promised an announcement soon on artificial intelligence and financial technology. We're just trying to make the state more competitive as best we can. John Harmon heads New Jersey's African-American Chamber of Commerce. When gauging the state's economic future, he said he sees the same candidates with the same old playbook. He wants change. And we see the same old stuff year in and year out. And I tell you from our organization, uh, we're going to put a stake in the ground uh, coming in 2024 because we're tired of it. And um, it's, it's inequitable. Um, the demonization of business in New Jersey. The business community says it wants a say in what happens after eight years of the Murphy administration. In Island, I'm Brenda Flanagan and Jay Spotlight News. Turning to Wall Street, here's how the markets close today. Support for the Business Report is provided by Newark Alliance, which curates the Newark Holiday Festival a collaborative calendar of holiday events in Newark's Arts and Education District. More details available at NewarkHolidayFestival.com. Every year, New Jersey's shore towns get slammed by the sea and storms, leading to beach erosion. Tens of millions of dollars pour into the state each year to fund beach replenishment efforts. Meanwhile, dredging of rivers like the Navasink and Shrewsbury are also ongoing to ensure safe passage by marine vessels. But are these costly projects leaving the state swimming upstream when it comes to combating the impacts of climate change? Ted Goldberg takes a closer look. This pipe snaking its way through Monmouth Beach is taking sand from the Shrewsbury River and putting it back on the beach. That's that, that pipe or whatever that goes from the river into this hole 
and then to the other side. Congressman Frank Pallone stopped by Monmouth Beach today, bringing attention to a $26 million federal project dredging parts of the Shrewsbury and Navasink rivers. If you don't dredge the rivers, people can't boat anymore or fish. And, you know, over the last few years, we've had a lot of complaints about shoaling and people not being able to get their boats in and out. Those funds come from the 2023 federal spending bill. The project aims to make it safer for boats to move around these rivers and build up the beach in front of the seawall in Monmouth Beach and Seabright. When you dredge, you get both muck Sure that's not the scientific name, uh, and you get sand. And to the extent that there's sand, that's what's being pumped here. This project is unbelievably important to the town of Monmouth Beach. It helps with our resiliency. Every bit of resiliency helps, as Monmouth Beach can get pretty narrow between the ocean and the Shrewsbury River. If you're standing here, you can see the river right there, and on the other side of the seawall is the ocean. So. It is of vital importance to us that this project happens. The benefit, obviously, is to not have the damage that comes in a major storm, which costs literally billions of dollars uh, to fix the utilities, the roads, everything. Uh, costs a lot more to fix than it does if you put the beach replenishment in. We are doing it with the intent of preserving the economic usefulness of oceanfront properties that are being vulnerable or being threatened uh, by um, by erosion, shoreline migration, sea level rise, and storm waves, and so forth. Andy Coburn is the associate director for the study of developed shorelines at Western Carolina University. I still do not believe that beach nursing is working in a lot of places, especially if somebody else is paying to protect somebody else's property. While he couldn't speak specifically on this project in Monmouth County, he disagrees with how the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers determines if beach replenishment or beach nourishment is worth the price. That methodology is flawed because it uses property value to determine the benefits of nourishment. And our belief is that property values aren't the correct way to assess the utilization or the return on public funds. A better way of doing that is looking at what are the public benefits of nourishment and instead of value of property, it would be the tax revenue that that value generates. Pallone also announced a separate beach replenishment project in Monmouth Beach and Elberon, which are scheduled to start next week. Offshore sand pits will produce the sand needed in both places. We've been working on these beach replenishment and dredging projects for years and will continue to do so. Federal funds will pay for 65% of that, even while some question if that's the best use of resources for protecting the shore. In Monmouth Beach, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. That does it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Joanna Gagas for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. And by the PSCG Foundation.